Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to the pod that's been blacklisted by God, your own Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my theological partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing this fine day? I mean, how could I not be doing well if I'm the co-host of this amazing podcast? I am doing great today. Yeah, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. Um, good to be rolling through August and summer at like a, a dangerous clip. Um, but here we are. So maybe just tell me and the audience what we're going to be talking about today. Like, what, what do we have on the menu? Okay, well, something that we've seen hints of for a while now, in particular since that episode we did on the Gospel of John, is the presence of race and ethnicity in early Christianity and demonology in particular. It's something that matters a lot today, obviously. Um, but I wanted to just read a little bit from Anthea Butler's uh, recent book, White Evangelical Racism, that kind of brings home this problem. She writes, In the summer of 2019 in Mississippi, a couple was turned down when trying to rent Boone's Camp Event Hall for their wedding reception. Why? The couple, a black man and white woman, was told by the event hall owner, first of all, we don't do gay weddings or mixed race because of our Christian race, I mean, our Christian belief. The hall owner's slip of the tongue was telling in its equation of Christianity with whiteness. For evangelicals, Christian race, America, and belief are synonymous. Christianity is whiteness as well as belief. It is this conflation that causes evangelicals to ignore their racism. They truly believe that their Christianity is a race, and this comprises an all-encompassing identity. Wow. Yeah, what a mind-blowing quotation. We, we don't do these weddings because of our Christian race. <laughs> um, really just... Uh, Terrifying. Yeah, saying, Terrifying saying the quiet part out loud, I guess, is what, what one says about that these days. Yeah. So clearly like the conflation of whiteness and Christianity is really, really important for the politics of the present. It's been true for politics in the U S since the beginning, we see it pretty actively explicit or implicit in white supremacist settler colonial societies, like the one we live in. Uh, for my part, it's, you know, like a year after the protests of summer 2020 and I'm starting to sense this kind of white moderate backlash seeping in um, in response to everything that happened. Even, you know, the, the moderates are one thing. There's all this hysteria on the right about uh, critical race theory, this sort of ongoing moral panic that is the sequel and uh, child of the QAnon moral panic, the, the save the children moral panic, just a new version of that. So look, I'm looking back from this vantage point and I'm like... I've been wondering how early Christianity with all of its ideas of the demonic and the incarnation and community, what that has to say to us about the conflation of belief and race that we just heard in the Butler quote. Well, that's a great question. You know, I want to add to, to that, 
the realization creeping over some corners of mainline white Christianity in America of our complicity in racism. And it is very much creeping. This is not like everyone's woken up yet. Um, I would argue that progressive Christians can't do this work of reconciliation well without considering our roots. How did early Christian communities imagine their identities with regard to what we now call race and ethnicity? But I also can't wait to discuss in this episode one of my favorite parts of the reading we did to prepare, and that's about how we should interpret the end of the third chapter of Galatians, which I confess is a beloved passage by leftist Christians like myself. Well, I think that passage you're just referring to, it's like a really good place to start because it's a foundational move. There's there's like a set of foundational moves in Paul that serve as really important examples for helping us unpack the complexity of universalism and particularity in early Christianity. In other words, the idea that Christianity is supposedly this religion that's for everyone, but also the idea that maybe there is a particular set of commitments or origins to that universal community. So just to reread that the Galatians 3 passage or to read the Galatians 3 passage that you referenced, Travis, um, Give us a word, Klaus. Give yeah, us a word. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you a good word here. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So note this claim of descent, this lineage from Abraham. That lineage, according to Paul, is achieved by faith. But faith itself is, of course, a gift. The status of being an heir is qualified by, quote, according to the promise. So in the metaphor of, now we're jumping around here in Paul's corpus, but in the metaphor of Romans 11, Gentile converts are but a wild shoot grafted onto the full branches of the cultivated olive tree that is Israel in its fullest sense for Paul. And there's priority shown here. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Yeah. So the sense that like the promise is a promise of being grafted onto this big Israel oak oak olive tree um and so like (laughs) some kind of tree some kind of tree yeah there's so there's like this yeah this really interesting agricultural metaphor um Mm -hmm. israel in this cosmic big sense that paul is thinking of is the is the nation into which gospel jesus believers are being adopted they're the ones being taken on and he's speaking in particular about gentile gospel adopters gospel followers participate in israel by god's grace but there seems to be something primordial and really like privileged about the place of the Jewish people in this plan of salvation for Paul. In the words of historian Philippa Townsend, Israel becomes ethnically porous and hierarchized. So like there's a pecking order within this cosmic universal nationality. Oh, that is a little complicated, but it's so important to kind of catch all of this. It's a move that's about inclusion on the one hand you're grafting on right to that olive tree but it's also come it also comes along with this idea of priority that the jewish people come first and these others are grafted on okay okay 
So this example from Paul's theology is really telling because we start to see how ethnicity or peoplehood is incredibly important for articulating what salvation means. But also what it means to be a people is taking some interesting twists and turns here. Paul is saying that Gentile believers in the gospel are being adopted into this nation. So we're starting to see how being a member of a people, an ethnicity, a race, whatever you want to call it, in this context, it's not something cut and dry. It's more about rhetoric, storytelling, the constructing of your lineage, rather than assuming that membership in a people is some sort of inert, inherent quality, given always and only by birth, for example. So as Denise Kimber Buell mentions, there's a lot of fluidity to this definition, depending on the circumstances, but nevertheless laying claim to solidity, the fixity, if you will, of a particular nation or race. And that's part of the power in what Buell calls thinking ethnically here. A long time, there was this gentleman's agreement or a scholarly consensus or something in between those two that race was an anachronism to bring into the discussion about late ancient Christianity. And the rationale behind this um, position um, or this reaction was that uh, race was biological and essentially modern in a way that didn't fit with the older sources. Another important idea that gave real cover to this allergy towards discussing race was the thesis by Frank Snowden, an important classicist, that the Roman Empire was against prioritizing ethnic identities as it forged an imperial universalistic culture. That, that word universal will keep coming up again and again in this episode. Um, and it's something that, of course, uh, early Christians adopted as they circulated throughout the empire. We can think of Paul you know, uh, evangelizing across the Eastern Roman Empire and adopting that kind of universal, like we are the, the bearers of humanitas. We are the bearers of, of what a reasonable uh, imp imperial form of civilization looks like was supposed to have mitigated against uh, particularism that you get from ethnicity. Why do we think that Historians, especially of the mid to late 20th century, into the 21st century. I know I, I've heard things like this in school. I'm sure you did. Oh, too, absolutely. Uh, Travis. Yeah. What do you think was the source of this adamant refusal to discuss race when it comes to early Christianity and ancient Rome? Well, I've got a few ideas on this. Um, first is this notion of anachronism that because when we talk about race, we mean this particular constellation of concepts that didn't exist in the same form, the same constellation at the time period. Um, there was no word that translates directly to race that covered the same ground. Um, see also, for example, 
historians' qualms with using the word homosexuality to cover anything that was before the late 19th century when the word first appears. So that's one reason historians have have cited for avoiding that term race. Um, And there are some interesting responses to that in the scholars that we read that I want to definitely get to later on. Um, But so that's a sort of historian's problem. Another is this kind of what I'm going to call a long durée nostalgia. <laughs> so we didn't actually live during this time period. No one's, no one's nostalgic because of experience. But there's this desire to posit a kind of golden age, a time when race didn't matter. Um, and this desire to go back to that, to return to this mythic past and somehow sidestep the real contemporary problems of, of racism, to avoid the question, really, um, by positing this golden age. Um, and then finally, there's this maybe most obvious reason not to want to engage, um, because engaging with race in this time period might implicate the entire field of New Testament studies, of early Christianity, as complicit in racism, right? What happens when you open the Pandora's box and admit that, well, maybe we can't talk about racism in the same way, but maybe we need to talk about race in this time period, even if we have to use other words to get at the concept, right? Um, Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. The the only thing I was going to say and... um was it was so funny how scholars are so allergic to talking about race, but talking about ethnicity just flowed off. It's the fine. Like ethnicity was like the fine. Safe, <laughs> safe word. But you know, as as um, Buell points out, is just as much an anachronism as yes. race uh, in these in these contexts. Right, and so we always are going to have this problem when we're in a working in a radically different time period of using words and frankly languages that didn't exist at the time to try and conceptualize what was going on. So I think it's a little bit of a sidestep, kind of a cheap intellectual move in some sense. Um, we always have to qualify. But, but such a dominant yes. one. Such a dominant one. Such it's a dominant all one. over. Yeah. And, you know, why can't we... Um, and it just seems that it's too important an issue to sidestep in that way. It seems to me disingenuous um, to not wonder that there's there's something important going on in this time period. And I think we found some of that um, here. But even historians as far back as Adolf von Harnack paid attention to a peculiar phrase that appears in early Christian sources. And that is describing Christians as the allogenos, the other or the third race that sits between the other two races, which were, I mean, of course, everyone knows the two races are Jews and Greeks. <laughs> right. Um, Genos can mean a bunch of things, though. So it's, again, this problem of translation, right? It means, we we think of it from biology. It's like a category, a broad category of things, a line of descent, uh, but also roughly approximating what we think of as a race. Um, and we've seen this language before in the show, especially with Justin Martyr, um, who used the idea of Christians as a people to draw comparisons, as you were saying, Travis, between Jews and Greeks, or with the Sethian Gnostics. They also used the idea of lineage to go back to Seth, you know, this member of the primordial family with Adam, 
to give an account of why certain people were capable of experiencing the truth of the Gnostic gospel, while others, especially self-professed Christians, were left cold by it. So I think that leaves us still needing to answer the question, why did Christians use this word, or the language of peoplehood as well? Ancient Greeks used the idea of nationality as a way to draw contrasts with other groups. So, for example, you've got the Athenians versus the Spartans, or sometimes the Greeks versus the Persians. Though, through that appeal to shared ancient roots. So that's how they would conceptualize this idea of peoplehood. And peoplehood was not only constituted by blood, rather, sharing in a common culture, specifically a shared history of religious practices, language, etc. This is how peoplehood was constructed. So it's complicated, really, already. It's not this straightforward notion of blood or descent. Another key rhetorical move in the construction of ethnicity in this period is shared ancestors or lineage. But this is not crudely biological. Adoption into the line was definitely an option. Think back to Paul's image of the wild olive shoots being grafted onto the tree of Israel, or, you know, how Klaus and I are both descended from, you know, Athena, as everyone knows. (laughs) That's why we're so wise and beautiful. (laughs) That's why we bring you this content almost every month. (laughs) Um, Um, but I, like what Travis is getting at, I think it's really important is how important rhetoric is when thinking about this material. So scholars who are studying the way nationality, ethnicity, race are mobilized in the ancient Mediterranean world are no longer stuck on trying to figure out whether there were such a thing as real nations Uh, So much as they're interested in how people use the language of peoplehood or nationality for different political and religious projects in different circumstances. That's what we're talking about as analysts. We're emphasizing what Denise Kimber Buell calls the fluidity of nation talk. Uh, But she also acknowledges that internal to these discussions of lineage and nationality, the, the fixity of being part of a race or nation is really central to its power. Like, why claim to be a real descendant of Abraham or Seth if you thought that you're going to be fluid, fluidly revised next week out of the family, right? As historians, we see how over time these concepts are being adapted and improvised to suit particular situations. But for the historical actors, they were trying to lay claim to something solid. That's right. So how exactly did Christians employ this language and to what ends? For thinkers like Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and his student Origen, the Christian race was something with a particular essence. Conversion or adoption into this people meant an ethnic transformation. It was theoretically open to all, universal, but it did change who you were and to what people you belonged. This openness also meant that everyone had the responsibility to change. Being part of this Christian ethnicity centered on shared ritual practice, i.e. sacraments, faithful obedience to a new covenant with God that results in a saved and, this is a little cringy to say, superior race. Yikes. Save me, Klaus. This is not good. (laughs) This is not good. Uh, 
Yeah, and there's internal diversity too. Uh, mm-hmm. So not everyone who was Christian in the Roman Empire in the third, second centuries wanted to conceptualize Christian identity in this way. Um, so a lot of the people who are doing it, like you said, Justin or Clement or Origen are in the sort of the Greek speaking world. Uh, and with Clement and Origen, they're in Alexandria, which was a place that was really important in the Roman Empire and had a certain degree of independence that was not characteristic of other cities. It's, so it's also a place that really um, elevated Hellenistic culture. Uh, so being Greek and doing Greek things was really important. But in places that weren't uh, culturally and ethnically Greek, like say Carthage, where our old friend Tertullian was, was active uh, from a few episodes back, Tertullian tries to downplay suggestions that Christians are a third race, like some sort of fifth column in the Roman Empire, and instead emphasizes that they're not different from the Romans, but in fact, they're the most Roman of Romans, the best of the Romans. The Romanist of Um, the Romans. (laughs) Yeah, uh, he's he's super Roman, right? so, but he, even though he wants to push back on this discourse of peoplehood and particularity, he still has to deal with it. Uh, and this is even true, of course, of cultures that claimed universality for themselves. Like, say, I'm thinking of the French, for example. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like you have to be, re- we're universally transcendent, but like, um, you know, other things that are very particular to us are, are very important. Um, like speaking about. Uh, <laughs> And not <laughs> Which and not cool. wearing the wrong kind of religious like uh, clothing, obviously. You know that that really yeah, that's yeah, not okay yeah. in France, apparently. God. But get this: even the ancient Romans in their 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 ascendancy saw themselves as superseding the Greeks when it came to the universal mission of civilizing humanity. So it's like very analogous to this way in which Christians will come talk about their relationship of superseding the Jews who fell from their sacred chosen mission. So what you're saying is the Romans were Greeker than the Greeks, or they saw themselves that way, and the Christians came along and saw themselves as more Jewish than the Jews. Yeah, we're we're getting there. Wow, we're getting there. that's <laughs> that's just wonderful. Um, this is a very uplifting episode. You're welcome, everyone. So uh, yeah, since speaking of Carthage, though, I did want to do like a shout out to our Perpetua and Felicity previous episode, um, which you may remember was was once attributed to Tertullian, like the sort of opening narrative, the closing, the closing part as well. And the, the passion of Perpetua and Felicity has that line about just as a vase can't be called by any other name, so our heroine cannot be called anything but a Christian. And, you know. The, the, and the implications, like, and not like you, governor of Carthage, who's like a, an infidel pagan, I guess, Roman. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's interesting what the, what the opposite of the Christian vase would well, be. Well, yeah, that actually is a great question. I was thinking now, because it's in an exchange also where her father is present, if I'm remembering correctly. And so the other side of that could be I've transformed into a Christian. Um, so there's this transform, that aspect of transformation in becoming a Christian, I think is operative in that text, or that's my working thesis anyway. Um, and that seems, it seems as if though, as you're pointing out in relation to the Roman governor, right, that 
we're looking at a Christian identity that is in opposition to a Roman identity, which suggests at least that in the same city, Carthage, and the same time period, that notions of Christian identity were definitely up for debate. Oh, yeah. And that's, and that's of course, that's why Tertullian's reacting right, to it. Right, exactly. Okay, so we've talked about the concept of ethnicity or genos and how it worked for Christians rhetorically. But what's dangerous about this model of constructing community? We're going to focus on two unfortunately similar and familiar exempla, those of Jews and Ethiopians. Early Christian texts make this significant move that really informs Christian anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. Claiming the role of the biblical Israel for themselves and rejecting the Jews as, quote-unquote, the children of the devil, spoken of in the Gospel of John. So remember how in John, Jesus and his disciples are spoken of as Israelites, which keeps them separate from the Judeans, or Jews, who are their critics. The Eudeoi in Greek, if I'm remembering correctly. We see this as early as the epistle of Barnabas from the first century CE. This authentic, sacred status as a people transitions spiritually to encompass the new genos, or race, of Christians, whose spiritual adoption into Israel transforms them ethnically. We've spoken of supersessionism before, the idea that Christian thinkers used to justify their use of Jewish scripture while rejecting the teachings of Judaism, right? The incarnation, to cite David Ulster, represents the culmination of Israel's true history, whether the Jews know it or not. Yikes. But what we see in this material is how some early Christians really leaned into the idea that they could assume the spiritual ethnicity of Israel while rejecting the legitimacy, even the humanity, of the actual descendants of Israel. Yeah, and there's another interesting place to build off of this uh, quickly with the church historian uh, Eusebius, who's the sort of the big person who writes the history of the church uh, during the the onset of Constantine's, the Constantinian turn in Christianity when Christianity becomes tolerated and then official gradually as the uh, religion of the Roman Empire. Um, But so one of the things that Eusebius seems preoccupied with is using the idea of Christian nationality to undercut assumptions about Greek superiority and antiquity. And so he does this by showing how Basically, the Greeks are themselves derivative of older peoples like the Egyptians or the Phoenicians. And so it's not Christians who are some new sect. In fact, they're super ancient because they, like we, like Travis just said, they lay claim to all this Jewish scripture. But it's not even just the scripture for Eusebius. They also lay claim to being the true descendants of Israel. They become the biblical Hebrews, while the Jews, through their corruption and their rejection of the culmination of their history via Christ, are in fact this corrupted, like offshoot, um, which is like this, this just really striking that for Eusebius, it's not like oh there was this before and after. It's like there was the before, and then we took over the identity of that chosen people. We're the restoration of that chosen people. And I see, I see like this really 
bizarre and bitter irony when we go back to how where we started in terms of our sources with Paul and Paul's ideas that Israel is this there's like this hierarchical relationship between the peoples in the sort of super ethnos of of Israel and it was completely reversed it was the Jewish people have this you know irrevocable calling and priority as the this sort of old rich olive tree that the Gentile gospel believers are being grafted onto. Um, and Eusebius has completely reversed this hierarchy and in a way that's so much less inclusive than Paul's version because cosmic Israel is is universal, ethnically porous, universal, but hierarchical. Um, whereas in sources like Epistle of Barnabas and Eusebius and across later Christian anti-Judaism, there's all this focus on rejection, exclusion, and appropriation of Israel's identity. This is all reminding me of that Cornell West Barton Lerner book from the 90s, Jews and Blacks, which P.S. has this amazing cover. Definitely Google it. It doesn't seem like an accident that so much of Christian racial paranoia focuses on these two racial categories. We just have to jump to the main point here. When we're talking about blackness and early Christianity, blackness is strongly associated with the demonic in both early Christian theology and spiritual writings. I think a good place for us to start here is with a recent figure from our last episode, you may remember, Origin of Alexandria. For Origin, colors in sacred scripture symbolize the status of the soul, so black skin is associated with a dirty soul. And he gets this from Philo's etymology of Cush, as, as in the civilization and linguistic family from the Horn of Africa that encompasses modern-day Oromo, a lingua franca of Ethiopia, as well as the Somali language, among others. So, as you can tell, we're off to a great start already. Yeah. And so a lot of this, this uh, racialized, proto-racialized, however you want to think of it, this, this sort of obsession with blackness in early patristic literature comes through exegesis. And so reading the erotic, mystic poetry of the Song of Songs, Origen hones in on the famous line, am I not black and beautiful, as a symbol for the soul's need for purification in Christ. Uh, so what he sees here is that all souls are black insofar as they are sinful, great, and beautiful insofar as they repent. So this has like this kind of aesthetic but heavily moralized gloss. So this is a verse that represents Christian optimism. But in general, blackness or the Ethiopian identity in these, these interpretations is a visualization of pre-conversion sinfulness that needs to be shunned. Um, blackness's association with beauty proves that the whole world can be claimed for the gospel. But we also see that dangerous tint of anti-Judaism coming on. Um, another interesting place where Origen is thinking about blackness and Ethiopia in particular is in Psalm 68, in which Ethiopia shall stretch out her hands to God. So for Origen, this means that we have a proclamation or a prophecy that Gentile converts as far away as exotic Ethiopia are going to supersede the Jews as God's people. Um, so really great to see this all coming together, you know, just really heartwarming to mm. see it all sort of like uh, coalescing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not getting depressed just thinking about this at all, just for the record. So... So, Klaus, you were just saying how Ethiopia in general stands for pre-Christian sinfulness. And 
that's sort of a nice way of saying that Ethiopians embody enslavement to the devil. There's that association with serving the devil. Origen takes us right there in his treatise on prayer when reflecting on the verse, give us this day our daily bread from the Our Father. Oh, also sometimes give us this day our super substantial bread. Anyway, we need a whole other episode on that. It's very fun. Okay, Origen contrasts this spiritual feasting on the substance of Christ to gnawing on the devil's thigh bone. What an exegesis. Um, anyway, Origen identifies take the me Egyptians to, take me to that those who feed... Sometime. I want to I try that one. <laughs> I mean, let's... write the devil's thigh bone. Let's go. Um, it, <laughs> so Origen identifies the Ethiopians with those who feed on the substance of the devil, the serpent. But where the hell is he getting this whole eating the snake business? And here, Klaus, I think you had an idea that you should share with with everyone about Weird Al and a remix. Yeah, so as I was thinking about this material, I kept wondering if we could do a a new version of Van Halen's Running with the Devil, uh, but update it to Running the Devil Through a Food Processor. I think it would take the genius. Um, I am all in favor of tweeting Weird Al to see if he's interested. Okay. So where is this coming from? This gnawing on the devil's thigh bone business, this eating the snake. Origen is reading a favorite psalm of this pod, Psalm 74, which we discussed in the classic episode two. Mm -hmm. The one where Yahweh crushes the head of Leviathan. In the original, it says that Yahweh crushes the head of the dragon and feeds its flesh to, quote, the inhabitants of the desert. Let's get nerdy. Let's get nerdy, Klaus. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, or a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, inhabitants of the desert in the Hebrew is rendered simply as Ethiopians. Some liberties have it's clearly been taken. It's just a shorthand. You know, here. just simplify it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just make this shorter. Short Let's just sweet. make it Ethiopians and call it a day. Short and sweet. So Origen uses this to present the Ethiopian as consuming the devil for spiritual nourishment and thus changes into a serpent by reason of the serpent's toils so that even should he express a desire for baptism, he is reproached by the word and hears it said, snakes, offspring of vipers, who hath promised you to flee the coming wrath? So, whereas in the commentary on the Song of Songs in which Blackness's beauty is part of this triumphalist faith in the conversion of the nations. The remarks on eating the snake in his work on prayer suggests that even the Ethiopians who desire baptism into the faith, and here I'm thinking of the Ethiopian eunuch for, as an example, anyway, are reproached by the word of God itself. So much for universalism, yeah, guys. so much for God will be all in all with these uh, snake eaters. I mean, it's, it's, it's like so wild. Um, so, like, we're another place in um, early Christian thought and practice that you see a lot of this uh, black demonic symbolism comes in the sayings uh, and histories, stories about the desert fathers who were early practitioners and experimenters in Christian monasticism. Um, and so, we're planning on doing an entire episode on the monks and their trials and travails with the spirits of evil 
uh, stay tuned. And it's it's been, I think there's been like a real revival of interest, especially as people are thinking about uh, monasticism and its impact on all kinds of features of Western culture, Eastern culture. I was drawn to this this article from back in the 70s by uh, a scholar, Philip Marison, who pointed out that there's only one positive reference to black people in the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Again, and there's a lot of them. And this is uh, this person uh, who's a, a spiritual leader among the the, uh, the monks of the desert. Uh, that's Moses the Ethiopian. And even as he's even as his moral character is being praised, his skin color is derided. And there's like almost this like something to me that seems like the monk equivalent of like intense over the top uh, frat boy hazing going on, um, especially with all the racism that's, that that goes along with that, just for appearing different. And there's even this story that there's different versions, but of when Moses is about to become like, take a step up in the leadership and receive the ephod, which is like sort of like the best, the breastplate that Aaron gets in in Exodus and take like this leading role in the community. um, He's, he's tested by being mocked for the color of his skin. And it's just, it's very disturbing. And I guess more disturbing still is that this is, this is the most positive reference to blackness that appears in this text. So just to think, to sit with that for a second. Yeah, that's the that's the good story, um, because the rest of the time, of course, the black characters are the demons in this collection of sayings. So in the case of St. Anthony, a black youth is the first demon he encounters. And this demon is self-avowedly the spirit of fornication. Anthony's reply to this demon is you are utterly contemptible, black hearted and weak as a child. And just because, why not? There's also some gender bending in these encounters. So, the wretched devil dared at night even to dress up like a woman and to imitate one in every way, merely to deceive Antony. In contrast, the black boy represents the devil's true nature. As if he were beside himself, he finally appeared to Antony in form as he is in his mind as a black boy. Right. There's yeah. just so much going on there, Klaus. It's there's I don't I don't really know where to start. Um, but just to note that fornication is coded as black here. It's coded as disingenuous, as lying even to the extent of its appearance. It's really a boy, but it's it's presenting as this uh, very appealing woman. Yeah. Oof, it's yeah. A lot. So there is like the, there's the homoerotic element there um that's racialized significantly and blackness does seem to have quite the attachment to fornication in these stories about the desert fathers overcoming their vices and they appear as other vices too but there really does seem to be something to the sexualized ones uh there's a story and they're they're not always they're not always boys too there's there's a story of uh, a young monk who was taken as a child into the desert by his father um, to live out the monastic way. Gee, thanks, Dad. And the demon of fornication who appears to this child who wants to get out of this monkey situation um, is black, female, and foul-smelling. Um, and she says to him, uh, to others who are not so disciplined, she smells like the sweetest thing in the world, but you smell me as I am. Uh, what? Uh, it's, it's just like, again, like just, just like this like this sort of the link between like this putrid smell 
sexual temptation and blackness. It's just, it's just, it's so supercharged and just like what the Meyerson says, like there doesn't seem to be anything really systematic about the racism of these texts. Again, we can, we could argue with that, but it's, he's like, it's, it's anything but subtle. There's no subtlety to any of this. Um, and I think he's right there. There's other examples in this vein, uh, including one in which uh, an Ethiopian demon shoots arrows of lust into an old monk who sort of hypocritically berates a young monk for struggling in the vocation. And it's like, wow, like St. Sebastian is logged on. Um, I'm loving it. Fun fact, St. Sebastian was definitely my best ever Halloween costume. Um, yeah, anyway, that's I was neither here nor there. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh. Glad, I, w- glad I was. I, I got I was a witness. I got a witness. Like, well done, well done. Um, yeah. Okay. We we will talk more about that later. Um, so, what do we make of this association between Ethiopians and blackness and lust? There's, of course, an abiding link in contemporary racism between blackness and hypersexuality and deviance. But can we be so sure that? the same thing or, or that something similar was going on back in the day. According to David Brackey, this imagery is built on a number of factors. So the desert monks in Egypt actually were living in a context in which Ethiopian military conquest was a real anxiety. There's a story about the monk John Lycopolis prophesizing for a Roman general that he will defeat the Ethiopians in battle and win favor from the most Christian emperor, Theodosius. So before that, in Roman culture, there emerged an idealized body aesthetic that positioned the Romans as the perfect mean between the very pale folk of Northern Europe and the black people of the Horn of Africa. That's just really interesting to think about because it's not the same kind of colorism that we have today. It's like there's a perfect middle color. That's very, that's a and little bit Christian, different. I mean, Christian theological is, apologists were always obsessed with being the middle way too. I mean, it's, it's a pretty common rhetorical strategy. Like we're down the middle. <laughs> true. True. I mean, like as a good, you know, Episcopalian and the Anglican way, I mean, like, yes, obviously. Um, I, I'm guilty of that too. So these aesthetics had moral valences, and there is evidence that the Romans hypersexualized Ethiopians in apotropaic devices for warding off demons in bathhouses. Because you know the demons like to show up in the bathhouse, am mm-hmm. I right? This may seem exotic, but there were also jokes about Roman mothers giving birth to Ethiopians, which expresses anxieties about the boundaries of Romanness and perhaps like questions of fatherhood, Klaus. Questions I don't of know. Fatherhood. Yeah. There's apparently like a lot of imagery that is like really like hyper phallic for men. And then like, like really huge breasts for presentations of women. So like, there's like, there is this, in ways that seem familiar to contemporary racialized, like racist, sexualized stuff, there is like some family resemblances there, um, and and yeah, so it seems like there's there's more to dig into that. But anyway, like it all all of this context layers onto this early Christian uh, exegesis of parts of the Bible where Ethiopians crop up, and in the Christian readings, this hypersexuality is something that is always there to be overcome either by literal castration and then conversion in the case of the baptized Ethiopian eunuch from the Acts of the Apostles 8, or with the Queen of Sheba's visit to King Solomon, which the early Christian exegetes represented as simply being a quest for wisdom and having nothing to do with sexuality at all. Okay. 
Uh, in the stories of the monks, we just we just sampled just a small sample, a small taste. The eroticized black demons represent for Bracky a moment of recognition and decision for the monks. Um, this moment of like sort of a crisis moment, which culminates in adoption into this homosocial community of masters and disciples. Um, blackness is overlayered with moral defects, again, like origins, color symbolism, as well as this sense of being an exotic pre-converted race enthralled to the devil. The erotic dimensions borrow from the Roman sexual and kin anxieties that Travis mentioned, but also function as a moment when desire needs to be reordered in proper channels, like for the desire for God or the sublimated erotic attachment between masters and disciples in these monastic communities. Wow. So ancient Christian anti-blackness sure is doing a lot of work here when it comes to expressing what it means to get serious, if you will, about the Christian life. Blackness in these sources, according to Gay Byron, is at once this symbol of the demonic simultaneous with an expression of Christian triumphalism. The supposedly inferior form of human models virtue, showing the regenerative power of Christianity for human beings who are all the closer to reattaining their prelapsarian Edenic qualities. Ooh, it's, it's thick, it's complicated here because blackness can function as that um, in this triumphalist narrative as a, a mode of moving from um, from the sinful state into one of blessing, but that is not. That's but not I, a but good I wonder thing if it's it's, it's your classic uh, exception that proves the rule. Like Moses, the Ethiopian exactly. is, is the one right. black character who's positively referred to and is is even mm-hmm. ridiculed and beaten down for that quality, uh, and is is the only one who makes it in in those stories. Yeah, that's true. Um, so what does this have to do with contemporary anti-blackness and hypersexualization? I'm definitely not going to throw out any hasty hot takes here, but it seems like there are very old Christian and Roman quote unquote resources for modern projects of racializing and hypersexualizing colonial subjects. And I think it's dangerous to ignore that and romanticize a pre-racist Christian past. Instead, there needs to be continued work on this very moment, um, not shying away from the admittedly different, not identical to our stereotypes, to our culture, um, but these similarities. We can't continue to ignore in scholarship um, the anti-blackness that's so obviously there and the ways in which it is part of larger narratives about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of the Christian people. I wanted to return to Galatians 3, you know, there is no 
Jew nor Greek, no male and female. We're all one in Christ Jesus, Klaus. Um, I wanted to return to that universalism from that verse and think about, you know, my own background and how the leftist Christian mafia, including myself, love to point to that when we talk about things like racial equality or, you know, oh, sorry, ethnic, if you, you want to use the old school historian approach to this. Text. I mean, Buell, Buell's right. okay with race. Like, Buell, Buell's willing to own Great. race in this, yeah. I've got permission from Buell, so I'm going to say it. Um, racial equality um, in within Christianity. Christianity is supposed to be a kind of race... Um, uh, a non-supremacist, non-racist zone, right? And that's how we've been interpreting this first. It's also been used to justify women's equality and even women's ordination because, you know, ultimately in this reality, in God's reality, these distinctions don't matter. But this episode has really got me thinking, Klaus, about, you know, to what end? Every time I see a universalizing move, my job now is to say, is this for good reasons or are we collapsing down into the norm and actually just oppressing people, right? So for example, when early Christian communities began to codify Christian identities over and against Jewish identities, which we talked about a little bit this time. So that's one reason I want to be more suspicious of universalizing moves when they show up. Um, so, to what extent, for example, when we look at these early centuries of Christian history, is Christianization and the formation of a Christian race ultimately about an erasure of previously held identities? Is that what should be going on, right, for those of us who identify as Christians? This sense of eschatological erasure like what to what end are we giving up our identities i guess are we doing that in the eschaton are we looking forward to that are we doing that in a kenotic sense are we emptying ourselves of our identities as christ empties himself to enter the world um, as jesus christ as in, as the incarnate god these are open questions for me but what it makes me ponder is why would it be desirable to get rid of these parts of ourselves, our, you know, our Greekness, for example, our maleness or femaleness, even in the name of unity? What kind of God would want to do away with the beauty of our differences, particularly when, at least in our limited human imaginations and in the historical records we've been looking through today, the default category when we tend to imagine a community that's been cleansed of difference is always white. It's always male, etc. Can I tell you something that this reminds me a lot of? And I'm sure it's not a coincidence. Um, I see. I feel like I've seen this increasingly, like especially since 2018, where I see like T-shirts and signs, you know, America, united we stand, divided we fall, and the sense of like, un like really pushing unity. Um, and it's supposed to be this like this almost generous universal gesture. But yeah, like what it means is get in line, get behind the thing that actually supports it, erasing 
and or trying to erase native peoples and subjugating race people, racialized peoples and, and, and you know, and, and different gender presentations. Like that's what it means. It's supposed to be this like magnanimous gesture, but re- what it really is is what you're saying about just reaffirming, drilling back down to the norm and conservatively asserting the privileges of certain groups over others. Exactly. It reminds me also when you said that of all lives matter, right? It's this idea of collapsing down into, wait a minute, that's divisive. We have to all be together. But when we do so, of course, we look over the particularity of experiences of oppression. Um, Think also, for example, of the erasure of cultural identities in and among the indigenous peoples of Canada, the and the U.S. obviously. And the, and the U.S., thank you. Um, and the horrors of cultural genocide in the name of Christianity. It is in this sense that we can talk about the new genos or genus of Christianity and ask ourselves whether we truly mean a merely religious identity available to all people or if something much more insidious is at stake here. Uh, this also recalls the conversations we had when we read The Passion of Perpetua and Felicity and early Christian discourses on becoming male in order to achieve deification or salvation. That also ties into this question around universalism and Galatians 3. And, you know, do we have it right in the Christian theological imagination? How do we imagine our connection? I guess that's how I would pose the question. This is a call for rethinking how we relate to one another as, as God's people and how that gets ironed out and how we honor one another and our differences rather than flattening things out and just reinforcing racist uh, and sexist norms. But I guess I'm going to shift it back to um, the topic of the, the official topic of the pod um, being the devil. So we, we've seen uh Especially, I think what's really interesting is the idea of this association between lust and sexuality, hypersexuality, blackness, and the demonic that we saw, especially in the monastic texts. And the question of how should we think about the continuities and discontinuities with the rampant anti-blackness of our contemporary situation? And so I think what we've been trying to do is not crudely asserting absolute identity or, or immediate continuity but to sort of think about how all this coordinates with this uh, this sort of developing, shifting persona of the devil. Um, so I think even without arguing for exact identity and continuity, like some things are really disturbingly uh, apparent. So like just to lay out, just to, sum- to summarize what we've covered, like in the case of blackness or Ethiopia in these texts, uh, it means, you know, at best pre-Christian thraldom to the devil um, that can be overcome through humiliation or just literally being demons. What we saw with the case of uh, how this relates to Jews, you know, this is, you know, going back to the Gospel of John, we have the, the children of the devil. Um, and again, we argued about how sort of complicated it was to talk about Eudeoi in, in that text. But with, with, with Eusebius and Barnabas, it, it sort of becomes a lot, a lot more, a lot more direct. This is the people, the Jewish people who lost out on truly being the people of Israel and have surrendered that title to the new third race, the Christians. So like you, you stack all that up and what you can still see that these discourses are not identical. 
uh, to the anti-blackness and anti-Semitism of the present. But damn, they are not helping. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> the newer forms can tap into the stored up power of the older ones and redeploy it. Um, so that's something, even if there is an identity, there can be a harmony um, when it comes to tapping into that old potential energy. Yeah, and if we're going to also reimagine some sort of universalism in a different sense from what we've talked about in that negative sense, I wonder if universalism could be about people, not just Christians, getting together to oppose anti-blackness, anti-Semitism, etc. That's the kind of universalism I'm ready to sign up for anyway, Klaus. The, the universalism of Starfleet, right? Like we, we finally, Exactly. When humanity finally gets its shit together, yeah. Star Trek. Okay, Star well, Trek universalism. Yes. <laughs> Star Trek universalism. I vote yes. So that's all for this week. We ran out of time because my dog is either possessed by the devil and I need to find a dog exorcist or he's just hungry. But either way, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.